Welcome back to GEMcast. My name is Christina Shenby, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Sandy Schneider. Dr. Schneider is an emergency physician and also a former president of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Sandy, welcome. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Dr. Schneider, in addition to all of her other work, is a great advocate for the care of geriatric patients in the ED. And today we're going to talk about a new tool that is being put out by ASAP called the ADEPT tool. And this is one in a series of high-yield, on-the-job tools that ASAP is creating on a variety of topics. Sandy, could you share some of your thoughts on the inspiration for this project, um, creating a toolbox of these tools that ASAP has put a lot of effort into? Yeah, so it really comes from my own practice, and that is that, first off, I don't have time to go on the web. I don't have time to read 50 pages from UpToDate or any of the other uh, online products. I need something at the bedside that I can look at, like we used to carry 3 by 5 cards in our pockets, and it's something called a peripheral brain. Is that um, like a paper version of the iPhone? Yeah, that's like a paper <laughs> version. Yeah, I know it was way before you were even born, uh, but yeah, it, it's that kind of thing. And it just would have scribble notes on it that would be like, this is how much of this to give and this is what. So, so we were trying to create that tool. We recognize that a lot of people can't get on websites when they're uh, working, either because they're at the bedside or, or because, uh, in the case of many of the places I've worked, they block me. But your phone, it always works. So we're going to put all of these on an app uh, for our members to use. So we have a whole series of them. For example, we have one on bariatrics. The inspiration for that is me because I can't remember which particular bariatric surgery leads to which complication and when it does. It, it's just too confusing. And so here's a nice little tool. You hit it and all this stuff comes down. For ADEPT, we decided we take on a problem that many of us face, and, and that is how to deal with the confused elderly person. I don't know about you, but man, I see a lot of these patients in, in my practice and, you know, some of them are really agitated, and, and how do we get them to the point where we can take care of them without causing a lot of problems? So that's what the inspiration for ADEPT was, was really to provide a tool you can use at the bedside. It's real short. It just gets right to the point. It doesn't give you a whole lot of pathophysiology. It just says, you got this, do this. You got this, do that. And that's what I love about this tool set. And I'll be going through each of the features of the ADEPT tool in detail, and it's accessible on the web at www.asep.org ADEPT. And the acronym stands for Assess, Diagnose, Evaluate, Prevent, and Treat. And it's a tool to help emergency physicians, APPs, nurses, anyone who works in the ED to care of older adults who come in with or for agitation. Sandy, what would you say are your key take-home points that you hope that this tool will address and communicate to physicians around the country and the world? The big two are just thinking about the confused patient and trying to decide whether they're demented and you're just seeing their baseline or they're delirious and, and they have something else going on. The other thing, and if I'm going to teach one thing from this tool, is that Haloperidol is not the drug of choice, and we need to start thinking about other alternatives, and it shouldn't just be, give me that dart, and I'll put that person down with it. We really have to start thinking of what's causing it, and then better ways of handling the agitation. 
Absolutely agree. Well, thank you so much for your time for doing this intro. And I look forward to seeing how it affects care and the impact it can have on patient care in the coming months and years. We want to thank the Allergan Foundation for providing the funding that allowed us to get this tool developed. It was developed by ASEP experts, but they provided the funding to do that. I also want to invite everyone to a pre-conference that we're having at the ASEP 18 on psychiatric emergencies. I don't know about everybody out there, but I don't know enough about psychiatric emergencies to really feel comfortable much of the time. So we would invite you all to look for the pre-conference and come in and learn a lot about emergency psychiatry and better ways to treat our patients. Wonderful. Well, Sandy, thank you so much. There's also another awesome pre-day conference that you can come to at ASAP 18, and that is the Geriatric ED Accreditation Pre-Day. If you are interested in having your ED become accredited as a geriatric ED, which if you didn't know that's a thing, that's even more reason to come, this half-day seminar will show you how to do it. I'm also giving a few talks at ASAP 18, so if you're registered, search for my name, Shenvi, in the speakers list, and you can come join me there. I would love to see you. Now let's dive into the adept meat of the tool. Again, this is for older patients who come in for or with agitation or confusion. First, assess them. Perform a thorough evaluation to determine the underlying cause. One of the take-home messages is that confusion in an older adult is not new-onset schizophrenia. Even hallucinations in an older adult are not new-onset psychosis. It's more often delirium or dementia-related changes. So as with any patient, evaluate for life threats or conditions that would require immediate intervention. For example, hypoxia, hypoglycemia, any stroke symptoms or signs of a STEMI. Delirium and dementia-related psychoses are the most common causes of confusion and agitation in older patients. Delirium is interesting because it exists on a spectrum. It can be either hyperactive, these are the agitated, restless, sometimes combative patients, or more frequently, it can be hypoactive, where patients are somnolent, they're kind of quiet, they're not causing trouble, they're just laying in bed. And this is more common and also has a higher morbidity and mortality than the hyperactive delirium. You can also have mixed states, which fluctuate between times of hyperactivity and hypoactivity. For agitated patients, it's important to immediately assess their safety and the safety of your staff. Also think about falls risk and established precautions if you need it, and if you have it available, a one-to-one -one sitter for patients that are at very high risk. So that's your basic intro to assessment. Next, you wanna find out the history and do a thorough medication review and collect collateral information. Confusion and agitation can frequently be due to medication side effects or changes in their medication. So it's important to get a medication history, including any new over-the-counter medications, alcohol use, illicit drug use, changes in their medication or changes in compliance or missed medications. Certain high-risk medications for altered mental status or delirium agitation include sedatives, steroids, antihistamines, anticholinergics, TCAs, which we don't see that much of anymore, muscle relaxants, and opioids. Next, it's really important to establish a baseline. So you need to contact family, or if the patient is at a facility, contact facility staff who are familiar with the patient to gather that collateral information and find out a little bit more about what's been going on. 
So for example, if a patient comes in altered and almost nonverbal, you need to find out is that their baseline or were they walking and driving and playing chess two days ago. Also, while you're making those calls, you can go ahead and find out what their social situation and support are. That will help you later on. That will pay dividends in your time when it comes to figuring out the disposition. Next, do a thorough physical exam. Obviously, vital signs are vital. Look at those. And remember that vital signs can be sometimes challenging to interpret in older patients. For example, a blood pressure of 110 over 70 may be hypotension relatively for that patient if their normal blood pressure is 180. Also know that patients who are on beta blockers may have masked tachycardia. Next, early on, do that finger stick. It's something that you can easily intervene on and that you wouldn't want to miss and find out two hours later that their blood sugar is 25. Fully expose the patient to examine the back, sacrum, genitalia, and feet for any possible ulcers and infections. Older patients may be less mobile, especially if they're wheelchair bound. They could have sacral ulcers that are now septic that you don't know about. If you don't take off their socks, many patients have peripheral vascular disease and diabetes. They may have pedal ulcers, look between their toes. They could have sores there that are causing a cellulitis or an osteomyelitis that you would not know about if you don't look. While you're looking, assess for any trauma. Older patients are at higher risk of falls, so look for signs, particularly on the head and neck, but also elsewhere on the chest. Look for signs of trauma. Look for potentially self-inflicted or non-accidental trauma from others. Do a good neurologic exam. Look for signs of stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, or even subclinical seizures. So that was the A for assess. Next is D for diagnose. And really what this means is think about delirium. Try to make the diagnosis of whether somebody has delirium. Delirium is the most common syndrome underlying behavioral changes, agitation, and confusion in older adults in the ED. And unfortunately, it's frequently missed. And there are some pretty simple screens that we can do that can help identify patients that have delirium. The hallmarks of delirium are an acute onset, waxing and waning symptoms, inattention, um, such as unable to recite the days of the week backwards, a change in cognition, such as new memory deficit, disorientation, perceptual disturbance, meaning hallucinations, or disorganized thinking, or an altered level of awareness, such as reduced orientation to the environment uh, or a RAS score other than zero. A couple of the quick screens that you can use in the ED are the delirium triage score, and the brief confusion assessment method. And the ADEPT tool has links within it to both of those. You can also screen for underlying major neurocognitive disorder or dementia. The major neurocognitive disorder is the new name in the DSM-5 for what was formerly known as dementia. So if the patient doesn't seem to have delirium, if they're not meeting those criteria, then they're confusion or their lack of orientation could be from underlying dementia. If you're able to do it, if the patient can cooperate with it, use a quick test like the Minicog. Ask the patient to remember three items. It's a good idea to always use the same three items so that you don't forget them. I use the Apple Table Penny. I tell them those things, ask them to repeat them back to me, and then I do some of my exam and then ask them to recall those three items at five minutes. If they get three out of three, you're mostly good. If they get none, then high risk for major neurocognitive disorder. If it's intermediate, then you can have them draw a clock face showing 10 minutes past 11 or 10 to two, and that can give you a good sense of their executive function. While dementia itself can cause behavioral changes, 
agitation, and psychotic symptoms. These symptoms should raise a concern for delirium if a patient does not have the pre-existing dementia. And also, dementia is one of the highest risk factors for delirium, so they frequently come together in the same patient. So that was D, diagnose. E is evaluate. Now is when you want to go find the underlying cause of the delirium. Because remember, delirium is a secondary syndrome typically caused by something else medical that's going on underneath. So first, evaluate. Perform a thorough focused medical workup for the agitation and confusion. Some of the leading causes are infections, intracranial abnormalities such as ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke or intracranial mass, electrolyte abnormalities, and medication side effects or complication. But often, delirium is multifactorial. For example, a patient may have been doing fine in their home with maybe some underlying dementia, and then they got a UTI and they were moved somewhere else and kind of a combination of these things, or maybe they got a UTI and they were doing okay, but then got dehydrated and that kind of tipped them over. And the workup should be driven by the H&P. So look for that underlying specific cause, recognizing that it may be multifactorial and may include environmental factors such as that change in environment, recent hospitalization, etc. Next, there are some general tests that you're probably going to want for all patients, the blood glucose being the first, that finger stick is quickest, a cell blood count to look for anemia, leukocytosis, a basic metabolic panel, remember metabolic causes or abnormalities are a frequent cause of delirium, such as hypo or hypernatremia, dehydration, AKI, that's acute kidney injury, hyper or hypokalemia, hypercalcemia, all of those things you can help figure out with the basic metabolic panel. And then you're often going to get a urinalysis and culture. Now, this is a complicated subject because I think it's possible to overdiagnose and overattribute delirium to UTI when really there isn't a true UTI, but it also is a common cause of delirium. There are high rates of baseline incidental pyuria and asymptomatic bacteriuria in older adults, especially those who are institutionalized or incontinent. So if you were just to go to any nursing home and sample all the urine of all the patients, many of them, in some cases up to 30% or so, would have bacteria and white cells in their urine pretty much all the time. That doesn't mean they have a chronic urinary tract infection, it's just incidental. So if it's indeterminate whether it's truly a UTI or they don't have any other signs of infection, you could consider waiting for the culture results before you treat borderline urinalyses. If the patient has symptoms, obviously if they look septic or have pyelonephritis, you need to treat them. But if they have symptoms of a UTI and the UA looks infected, then certainly treat them. The next thing most patients will warrant is an EKG. Can look for dysrhythmias or ischemic changes that could be causing their delirium or altered mental status or even agitation. Next, you can consider some specific targeted testing based on your history and physical to look for additional things, such as for infection, a chest x-ray, blood cultures, a lactate, may need a chest or abdominal CT or a lumbar puncture. And then looking for drug or medication complications, you can consider getting specific drug levels of things like lithium, digoxin, salicylates, acetaminophen, or a venous blood gas. And going on with the acetaminophen level, if they have chronic toxicity, which is more common when they're just trying to treat maybe their arthritis pain, they're taking too much acetaminophen, 
The acetaminophen level may be normal, but their LFTs may be elevated in cases of chronic toxicity. And there's a gem cast on that with Dr. Mei Yen on uh, toxicity in older adults of acetaminophen. Next, think about drugs or alcohol abuse or withdrawal in older patients. They, you can get an ethanol level, your urine drug screen is gonna be plus minus useful. And if you think they could be withdrawing, go ahead and do that CWA score. For electrolyte and metabolic derangements, we already talked about the CMP, You may the complete metabolic panel. You may want to throw on those liver function tests, the venous blood gas, and ammonia, which can be elevated due to various medications, such as Depakote is a common one, or from liver failure, and that can certainly cause, for example, the hepatic encephalopathy. For a trauma evaluation, if there's any focal deficit, signs of head injury, severe headache, otherwise unexplained decreased level of arousal or a seizure, Think about that head CT. For cardiac disease, we talked about the EKG. Think about that troponin, BNP, and chest X-ray. Other considerations, if you're worried that they're hypoventilating and maybe hypercarbic, for example, in our patients with COPD, check that blood gas for hypercarbia. Also, another good one to check is a thyroid-stimulating hormone if you're looking for any signs of hypo or hyperthyroidism. And then remember other things like carboxyhemoglobin levels. If you're thinking possible carbon monoxide toxicity, that can certainly come in with very nonspecific symptoms of malaise, fatigue, not acting their self, etc. And then check a core temperature if there's any concern for hypo or hyperthermia. So we've done ADE, that's assess, diagnose, evaluate, and next we have prevent P. So there are some things that you can do for each individual patient, kind of as an individual physician or provider, that you can do to prevent development of delirium or prevent worsening of delirium. Those are, first off, try to figure out the underlying condition and treat it, whether that's an infection, electrolyte disorders, dehydration, or medication-related side effects. Try to treat whatever you can. Next, treat their symptoms. Pain, nausea, constipation, these can all cause the patient to feel more uncomfortable and potentially become more agitated or delirious. Restart their home meds unless it's contraindicated. Unfortunately, in many ERs across the country, patients are boarding in the ED for a long period of time, and frequently they go without their home medications until they get admitted up to a floor. If you can restart them, that may help ward off future problems. For example, if a patient is chronically taking olanzapine or some other anti-psychotic or mood-stabilizing medication, if you can restart that, then it may prevent them from becoming more agitated further on down the road. Avoid the use of high-risk medications, such as benzodiazepines, sedatives, muscle relaxants, Ketamine, it seems to have some significant side effects in older adults, and I did a gem cast on that a few couple months ago. Antihistamines, high-dose antipsychotics, and medications with anticholinergic properties. If a patient is on chronic benzodiazepines, then I would go ahead and continue those because you don't want to potentially precipitate withdrawal unless their mental status is significantly decreased, in which case, please don't give them more benzos. Next, you want to normalize daily function. So make sure they have access, unless medically contraindicated, to hydration, food, toileting, mobility. If they have their hearing aids, um, vision aids, day-night signals, and limit disruptions 
that are not necessary. So maybe you don't need the blood pressure cuff to cycle every 20 minutes. Avoid tethers as much as you can. Things like Foley catheters, continuous IV infusions if they don't need it, blood pressure cuffs, other monitors that will all tether the patient to the bed and can be very disorienting. So those are some things that each individual physician or provider can do for each patient. But then there are a lot of other things that require more coordination with the hospital and systems-based measures. And this is where, if you're interested in making your hospital and your ER more geriatric friendly, there's a lot of guidance and support for that through the geriatric ED accreditation program that ASAP has. And I am not funded by the geriatric ED accreditation program, just to put that disclaimer in there. So some of those things are providing mechanisms for redirection or distraction by means of maybe activities that they can have, volunteers who are trained to help take care of um, delirious patients and occupy them, means for self-reorientation potentially, things like clocks, calendars, signs. Some disoriented patients may become more agitated when their perception of reality is actively challenged, but in general, it's good to have those reorienting things. And encourage family members who are helpful and caring, encourage them to stay. Next is preventing injury. Confused patients are at high risk for falls. So having things like lower beds, chairs instead of beds, non-slip floors or socks, and sitters if available for patients who are at very high risk. Next is having systems in place to reduce the ED length of stay. An increased ED length of stay is associated with worse outcomes and may increase the risk or severity of delirium. So avoid boarding patients in the hallway, prioritize transfer to a floor as soon as an admission decision is made, if at all possible. And then another important key is communication. The ED physician and nurse should ideally communicate to the inpatient team that you are concerned about delirium, dementia, or agitation. If that diagnosis of delirium is not made formally in the ED, it's often also potentially missed in the inpatient setting. So it's important to communicate that to the inpatient team. Finally, T is treat. So we've done everything we can to assess, diagnose, evaluate, prevent. Now, what can we do to treat the patient if their agitation itself is becoming potentially dangerous? Well, first, we take a multimodal approach. We treat the underlying condition, we treat their symptoms such as pain, nausea, etc., and we follow those prevention steps that we just talked about. Next, if a patient is becoming more agitated, we can use verbal de-escalation principles such as respecting their personal space, not being provocative, continuing to be kind, calm, and respectful, establishing verbal contact, using simple, concise language, and identifying what the patient needs or what their feelings seem to be, listening to what they're saying, and agreeing with them when you can, but setting clear limits that, no, they cannot walk out of the hospital into the street because that's potentially dangerous. Offer some choices. That's part of what comes in with offering something to do or activities, and debrief the patient and staff afterwards to see how it went. If the verbal de-escalation techniques are not working, then sometimes you do have to give patients medications. And it's a good idea if you can, if the patient will take it, to take an oral medication. Start with a low dose and then frequently recheck and titrate if needed. All of these medications have potential side effects and there are risks, so you only use them if you need to. Some of the medications are, for example, Risperidone at a dose of 
one milligram or less orally. Take caution in patients who are volume depleted. It can cause a little bit of orthostatic hypotension, and that's actually pretty much true for all of these antipsychotic medications. Olanzapine orally, 2.5 to 5 milligrams is a good one. That's I use that pretty frequently. Quetiapine, 25 to 50 milligrams. That can make the patient potentially sleepier, so just be aware of that. And then if the oral is not sufficient or the patient will not cooperate to take those, then you can consider IM or IV medications. Again, using the lowest dose possible to maintain patient and staff safety, and you can always give more of the medication and redose if you need to. In patients with agitation who are elderly, you do not want to give the typical doses for, say, a young, strong 20-year-old who is very agitated from bath salts or some other toxidrome. Those patients often get 5 to 10 milligrams of haloperidol intramuscularly, and this in older adults can have prolonged sedation and side effects. So you want to, again, start with lower doses. IM or IV, you can give olanzapine, 2.5 to 5 milligrams, or zepracidone, 10 milligrams IM, or haloperidol, 1 to 2.5 milligrams IM, or 0.25 to 1 milligrams IV. So much smaller doses. Haloperidol has a higher risk for extrapyramidal side effects than the atypical antipsychotics, so just be cautious. All of the antipsychotics have a black box warning that they are not approved for dementia-related psychosis due to an increased mortality risk in elderly patients with dementia. When thinking about medications, avoid benzodiazepines if possible, unless the patient is in benzodiazepine withdrawal, in which case treat them with the benzodiazepines. But these medications in older adults can both cause prolonged sedation. They can be sedated for up to 48 hours. And in some patients, they can cause paradoxical worsening of their agitation. If you do end up using a benzodiazepine, which we don't recommend, doses should be very small, 0.5 to 1 milligram of lorazepam, PO, IM, or IV. Another medication that's sometimes used in younger patients is diphenhydramine or Benadryl. This one I would just flat out avoid in older adults unless you're treating them for anaphylaxis because it has anticholinergic side effects and also can cause prolonged sedation. So that, in a nutshell, is the ADEPT tool, Assess, Diagnose, Evaluate, Prevent, and Treat, and it is online at asap.org ADEPT. You can pull it onto your smartphone desktop or background so that you can access it quickly it's free, available to anyone. And for each of those sections, there are several references to give you more information if you want to know where we got this or if you want to find more information about anything. I want to acknowledge this was a team effort. I worked alongside Maura Kennedy, Mike Wilson, Charles Austin, Mike Girardi, as well as the ASAP staff, Sandy Schneider, and a group of ASAP staff. Again, please join us at ASEP at the pre-day conferences, either the one on psychiatric emergencies or geriatric ED accreditation. And if you're going to ASEP, come check out my talks. I would love to see you. Tune in next time.